Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Hey, I'm Jeff Cohen. Everything you hear on WNPR, from local news and talk shows to the national programs you love, is made possible because of listener support. You make it happen. You give the radio its signal, the computer its stream, the smartphone its podcast. You make it so we can reach you wherever you are. We love that you listen, but we also need your dollars. Go to WNPR.org and click on Donate in the upper right-hand corner. Thanks for helping out. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. It's National Sleep Awareness Week. Coming up, we'll learn how a California-based company is helping educate parents about safe sleep with a cardboard box. We'll explain. That's later in the hour. First, are you feeling tired right now? You're not alone. Experts say 40% of Americans suffer from insomnia. How does that impact their lives at work and at home? Today where we live, Dr. Mayor Krieger joins us. He's professor at the Yale School of Medicine and author of the new book, The Mystery of Sleep. Do you know how much sleep you're supposed to get? Have you wondered how being tired all the time is affecting your health? We want to hear from you. Join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Email where we live at WMPR.org. As always, find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Now, Dr. Merrick Krieger joins us today from the studios of Yale University in New Haven, Connecticut. Dr. Krieger, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I understand that your experience in uh, sleep medicine goes back several decades. What prompted you to write this latest book, The Mystery of Sleep? Well, I wrote the book to arm patients with information um, because most doctors, unfortunately, do not explore sleep issues when a patient comes in. And many patients have really important sleep problems that they don't really bring to their doctor's attention. So the purpose of the book um, is really for people to explore their symptoms, explore what is normal, to see whether they in fact have a problem that needs to be treated, and then to, to develop the vocabulary, the words that they can use to actually explain their symptoms to their doctor. Now, you're again involved in, in sleep medicine. Why is it that doctors at exams don't ask people about their sleeping? Well, the real problem is medical schools. And most medical schools really only spend, uh, actually most do not have any, have any teaching about sleep at all. And the ones that do will usually only have one or two hours in all four years of medical school. So the problem is that medical schools and training programs really don't give um, trainees enough information about sleep. Um, and, and it's not entirely surprising because sleep medicine is a fairly new field. What do we know about sleep? Why do we need it? Well, we don't know all the reasons why we need it. We know what happens if we don't get it. We know that our performance deteriorates, our thinking deteriorates, we can't concentrate, and we're also at risk of having all sorts of medical issues. And we now know that there are certain disorders, sleep diseases, if you will, that can really re, uh, result in very terrible outcomes. So, and this is fairly new information. Now, we're going to get into some of those disorders a little bit later, but when we talk about 
actually sleeping each night. What's happening when we sleep? Well, there are all sorts of wonderful things happening. Uh, one of the things that we do is we dream, uh, and, and everybody dreams three to five times a night. They may or may not remember the dreams. Some people remember none. Some people remember many of them. For some people, these dreams can be frightening, especially if they have something like post-traumatic stress disorder. The other thing that happens when we sleep is that we repair things. Uh, there are many hormonal changes that occur. Um, our tissues rest, they repair themselves, as an example. And the other thing that we know is that sleep is very, very important to lay down memories permanently. In other words, during the daytime when you learn something, it's there, it, it, it's there, it's not permanent. At night is when you lay down the memories so that you can remember them a day, a week, a month, a decade later. Now, um, we're, we're also talking about um, why, or before the show, we asked our listeners how much sleep they're getting, uh, people on Twitter. Um, we've heard from some that said maybe they're getting four hours of sleep on average. Some get six to seven. How much sleep do we need depending on our age? Depending on our age, the average adult needs somewhere between seven to nine, but there are um, examples of people outside of that range. For example, elite athletes, um, for example, people like LeBron James, they may actually sleep 12 hours out of 24. Um, there are some people um, who claim to sleep only three or four hours and, and uh, say that they do perfectly well. An example of that is, uh, um, is President Trump. Whether or not uh, the, all of their functions are as normal as they could be, we don't really know. But there are many people who look at sleep as a waste of time. Um, science now tells us that not only is sleep not a waste of time, it's absolutely critical to optimal health. So what's happening when we don't sleep? How does that impact our bodies? Well, um, there are many, many um, impacts that occur, and they occur in different organ systems. One of the, uh, for example, the most common symptoms that people have when they don't sleep enough is that they're very sleepy. Uh, they can fall asleep at any time and, and, and doing anything. And for certain mission-critical jobs, for example, if you're a pilot or an air traffic controller, that can be a disaster. And there have been um, several disasters that have been documented where many people have died because... Uh, a pilot fell asleep or, or was very, very sleepy. There have been train accidents. Uh, you'll remember there was one um, in New York State a couple of years ago where the, the um, locomotive engineer actually ended up having a sleep problem, and he had fallen asleep uh, while he was driving the train. Our judgment becomes poor when we're sleep-deprived. Our mood becomes extremely abnormal. Now, in terms of uh, problems with sleep that have uh, other kinds of medical implications, we know, for example, that diseases like sleep apnea, a condition where you stop breathing, can result in high blood pressure, heart disease, stroke, and, and those kinds of things can have a fatal outcome. 
This is where we live. We're speaking to Dr. Mayor Krieger today, professor at the Yale School of Medicine, author of this new book, The Mystery of Sleep. He's joining us today from the studios of Yale University in New Haven, Connecticut. Now, are you someone who has trouble sleeping or you find that you're drowsy often during the day? Have you ever thought about how it impacts your health? You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. There's a stat here, uh, Dr. Krieger, uh, the National Sleep Foundation estimates 47 million American adults may be putting themselves at risk for injury and health and behavior problems because they're not getting enough sleep. But you also um, write that when you're deprived of sleep, sometimes you don't even know that you're impaired, that that's impacting your performance and and what you're doing each and every day. That's absolutely true. Uh, uh, People who have been sleep deprived for uh, long periods of time very often uh, are unaware that they're actually very, very impaired. And that's really analogous, for example, with someone who's been drinking alcohol. They may feel that they're absolutely fine, that their performance is great. However, their performance has, in fact, degraded a lot. And and if uh, someone has been sleepy for weeks, months, or years, they may not even appreciate that falling asleep at a movie theater or falling asleep at a red light is even abnormal. Um, and, and, and we see this in a sleep clinic all the time. Let's talk about some of the common sleep problems. Uh, you mentioned sleep apnea. Um, I think in the beginning of the show, I mentioned that 40% of Americans uh, yearly say that they suffer from insomnia at some point um, during that year. Can we talk a little bit more about what you have learned through sleep medicine about these problems? Well, um, I want to begin by saying this, that almost everything I've learned about sleep medicine, I have learned from my patients. And, and um, over the years, I'm guessing, my gosh, I've probably seen about 30,000, 40,000 patients. And, and, and they were all unique. Uh, when I started in, in the field, there was no field. And so the only way you could learn is from, is from your patients. So one of the things that I've learned, when I first started, everybody in medicine thought that, you know, you, you go to sleep, you wake up, everything is great. Um, and now we know that there are many dangerous things that can happen during sleep. And sleep apnea is the most common condition that we see um, in a sleep clinic. And, um, and 30, 40, 50 years ago, it wasn't even described in the medical literature. And so there's been a huge amount of, uh, of research and education about the condition. It's one where people stop breathing. They stop breathing repetitively. And every time they stop breathing, it puts a strain on the heart. The blood oxygen level drops. And, and the brain is really temporarily deprived of oxygen. And the only way that the person can start breathing again is for their brain to wake up. So one of the things that we learned is people with that disorder can wake up hundreds of times a night. And so that's the most common condition that we see. Um, And now almost everybody knows someone who either has sleep apnea or is is being treated for sleep apnea. It's that common a condition. Uh, We have a caller who has a question about uh, sleep apnea. Tom, you're on the show. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Um, I had been diagnosed with sleep apnea, and I tried using one of the CPAP machines, and uh, had terrible results with it. Uh, the mask wouldn't fit my face properly, so it would leak and wake me up, and you know, I, I felt like I was waking up in a hurricane. And the second question I had regarding this um, uh, 
solution to sleep apnea is is there such a, a, a device that doesn't use constant pressure that it only pressurizes when you're inhaling thank you Tom for your questions and uh, quickly uh, dr. Krieger um, explain to our listeners exactly what Tom's talking about the type of uh, machine that people with apnea um, are advised to use Sure. So the the problem in most patients with sleep apnea is their breathing passage collapses when they're sleeping. And what and the most commonly used treatment is called continuous positive airway pressure and it's it's basically a mask that fits over the nose and or the mouth and the mask is attached to a gadget that generates a little bit of pressure and the pressure sort of opens up the breathing passage, kind of like blowing into a balloon. Uh, that treatment um, can be quite um, uh, invasive, as you will, as, as Tom um, indicated, because it's hard to get used to wearing a mask um, uh, when you're sleeping. And so one of the things that we've learned is that, number one, not everybody is best treated with a mask. Uh, and and one of these pressure devices, and we're we're really fine tuning our, our treatment. And some patients, for example, might do better with a different kind of treatment. For example, a dental appliance that they might wear at night that brings their lower jaw up and forward, and that works really well in in many patients as well. And Tom might be interested to learn that there are now machines that are automatic that automatically detect when the pressure needs to be increased or decreased. And that uh, is, is something that um, he might want to discuss with his doctor, whoever is treating him. But I, I understand that, that yes, it is, it is uncomfortable. Many patients uh, put up with the comfort because they feel that much more alert during the daytime. We're going to talk more about more uh, sleep disorders coming up. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We're learning about sleep today because it's National Sleep Awareness Week. In studio with us is Dr. Mary Krieger, professor at the Yale School of Medicine, author of the new book, The Mystery of Sleep. He joins us today from the studios of Yale University of New Haven. Coming up, we'll take more of your questions. We'll find out more about sleep disorders and why women tend to have more sleep problems than men. Join the conversation at 860-275-7266. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Common sleep problems include snoring and sleep apnea. How do these and other disorders affect your health? We spoke about some of the disorders before the break, and it turns out common problems like insomnia and restless leg syndrome affect women more than men. Today we're exploring sleep with expert Dr. Mayor Krieger, professor at the Yale School of Medicine and author of the new book, The Mystery of Sleep. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. We're getting a few listener tweets. Uh, Jess writes, I get about five to six hours a night. Chronic pain makes it harder to get more than six hours of sleep at a time. Another from Helder, I've been dealing with sleeping problems for years. Lately, I tend to wake up at one or two and can't fall back to sleep until four or five. So Dr. Krieger, if we could talk more about insomnia and why this is such a common problem. Insomnia is an incredibly uh, common problem. And as you mentioned earlier, about 40% of the adult population in, in, in America 
suffers from insomnia um, at least once a year, and about 15%, uh, somewhere between 10 and 15% of the adult population has significant insomnia most of the time, um, uh, you know, three to five times every single uh, week. And, and insomnia is, is, an, is, is really, it can be very, very distressing. When someone is lying in bed and they're not falling asleep, um, they be, people become frustrated, they become anxious about not falling asleep, they try to fall asleep harder and harder and it doesn't work. And, and it, it also happens, as, as the person uh, tweeted, people will wake up in the middle of the night and then have a great deal of difficulty falling asleep again. Now, there are many uh, conditions that are associated with insomnia. Um, for example, people with arthritis, and one of your listeners mentioned that they have a lot of pain. Any condition that causes pain can actually cause uh, insomnia, and the conditions that are associated with insomnia need to be treated. Um, as uh, the most common example that we see um, in a clinic are people who are being uh, who have been diagnosed with depression. About 50% of people with depression. Um, actually will have uh, insomnia. They'll have trouble falling asleep or staying asleep. And one of the things that we know is that some of the medications that are being used to treat in, um, depression can actually make insomnia worse or actually cause uh, restless leg syndrome that we'll probably get into um, in a couple of minutes. So, so, Dr. Krieger, when you mention um, insomnia, are there any over-the-counter uh, meds that people can take to help them? There are over-the-counter meds, and they fall into two categories. Um, and one of the categories are medications that include melatonin. Um, and the other category of medications that are out there are medications that include um, an, a, what we call a sedating antihistamine. In other words, an antihistamine that actually has as a side effect sleepiness. Neither one of those treatments, unfortunately, is, is, is very, very effective. Um, the antihistamine treatment frequently leaves people groggy, uh, and the melatonin uh, is not a very powerful um, uh, medication to, to put one to sleep. It's much more effective to change someone's circadian clock, uh, for example, in dealing with jet lag and conditions like that. So the over-the-counter medications, unfortunately, are not fabulous in the treatment of insomnia. But one of the things I want to mention is that pills, uh, there are many sleeping pills, prescription sleeping pills on the market, is that sleeping pills are not the first thing that doctors should use to treat insomnia. It should really be the last thing that they use to treat the insomnia. The most commonly used treatment that we have in our clinic, for example, at Yale, um, is what's called cognitive behavioral therapy. We basically teach the person to fall asleep again. S falling asleep should be natural. You shouldn't have to work at it. It should be natural. And we have uh, a practitioner who's extremely experienced in, in, in administering that type of treatment. Oh, we want to take another call. Karen's calling from Brantford. Karen, you're on the show. Thank you. Hi. Yeah, I just wanted um, to make people aware of, of a device, an oral appliance that I have found to be so far superior to a machine, which 
I couldn't tolerate, and that is um, a laser-printed uh, you know, mouth appliance that's perfectly shaped to your own teeth and is so thin and lightweight and has saved my marriage. <laughs> well, we're yeah. glad to hear that. <laughs> yeah. So, so what you're describing is called the Narval appliance, and and this is one of the oral appliances that we frequently um, actually prescribe for the treatment of sleep apnea. And that type of appliance, um, um, in many patients, is is effective, and it brings a lower jaw up and forward. And it can be extremely effective, and and for for most patients, it's more comfortable than using a CPAP machine. I wanted to so, talk. Oh, go ahead, Doctor Krieger. Yeah, and and so the message is that if someone, if one type of treatment isn't effective, the person shouldn't just give up. Uh, they should go back to their doctor or their sleep specialist if they're seeing one to explore other options. Uh, Dr. Kruger, before we run out of time, I wanted to get into why uh, you've you've dealt much in your book, The Mystery of Sleep, with uh, um, why women suffer from more sleep problems than men. What have you discovered? Well, one of the things about about females, about women, is that they have more sleep problems their entire life, and there are many reasons for this. One of the reasons um, actually is related to to their menstrual cycle. During the menstrual cycle, um, their their reproductive hormones, estrogen, progesterone, um, uh, FSH, they go up and they go down. And one of the things that we've learned is 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 the reproductive hormones, these sex hormones, actually they also have an effect on the central nervous system. And women during the menstrual cycle can actually have uh, problems with sleep, particularly before m- menstruation. Then uh, women become pregnant, and during pregnancy, uh, sleep can really be horrible. And and towards the end of pregnancy. Um, women may have a significant heart for, uh, heartburn interfering with their sleep, restless legs. They can have snoring. They just can't get comfortable. And the baby's kicking can, in fact, keep them awake uh, as well. And then later on, women will become menopausal. And during menopause, there are these dramatic reductions in the sex hormones, and that has an effect on hot flashes, uh, it can, you know, hot flashes become very, very common. And women will frequently have hot flashes and feeling uh, really warm and uncomfortable and sweating during sleep. And that'll interfere with things. And then later on, um, women have certain conditions that are just more common than, than the same conditions in men. Uh, for example, arthritis. And these are also associated with sleep issues. So women have a lot more sleep problems than men because of these reasons. And then the other reason, of course, is lifestyle, in that in many families, it is the woman who, you know, the mother, who's the last to go to bed at night and is the first one up in the morning. And so there's a tremendous amount of potential sleep deprivation in women Mm -hmm. compared to men. Uh, We've just got a couple more minutes before the end of our um before we get to break, Dr. Krieger, but something that Karen had mentioned when she called is that uh, this certain device helped her save her marriage. And you talk about in your book about uh, people who may not have sleep problems or disorders per se, but how they're impacting their partners, the secondhand sleep problems. Yeah. So, so if one person has a sleep problem in a family 
everybody in the family has a sleep problem. And for example, um, someone who's trying to sleep next to a snore, on the average, will probably lose about an hour of sleep a night. Um, if someone moves a lot during sleep, has restless leg syndrome, the movements are going to bother the person sleeping next to them, and they're going to have a lot of difficulty. And then there are the other, um, we, there's a condition that we see called REM sleep behavior disorder, where people react to what they are dreaming, and they can punch and they can harm their bed partner um, while they are sleeping. So um, there's no such thing in a family as a sleep disorder affecting only one person. It affects everybody. And Dr. Krieger, we know many of us are sleep deprived. Uh, what do you think about napping? Napping is terrific. <laughs> and, 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 and I see that you, know, you're, you are giggling. And it is terrific. And um, it's highly recommended. Um, and the ideal length of a nap is somewhere between 15 and 30 minutes. And for example, if someone is on a long drive and they find that they're having trouble, um, you know, they're having trouble focusing, uh, they're biting their, their lip in order to stay awake, they're opening the window, and, and, and in some cases they'll even put their, their head outside the window like you might have seen a dog do in order to stay awake. When you get that tired, um, it's red alert. Um, you're now in a dangerous situation, and what you need to do is to pull over and, and actually take a nap. Now, one of the things that, that um, is recommended is that if you're going to do that, you should probably grab a cup of coffee immediately before the nap so that by the time you wake up from your nap, the coffee will have reached a level where it's actually waking you up. I was giggling because who has time to nap these days, Dr. Krieger? Everybody has time to nap. It's just <laughs> we need a to matter make time. <laughs> you need to make time. You, ma you need to make sleep a priority. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Um, today with us is Dr. Mara Krieger, who's professor at the Yale School of Medicine. He's author of the new book, The Mystery of Sleep, Why a Good Night's Rest is Vital to a Better, Healthier Life. Uh, we're running, running out of time, but uh, Dr. Krieger, real quick about restless leg syndrome. Uh, any kind of therapy or medi medicine that can help with that disorder? Well, yeah. Let me first describe what we're talking about here. So people with restless leg syndrome... Um, um, have have this urge to move, and usually the urge to move is in in the legs. They can't get comfortable. They move a lot, and one of the things that we found in a sleep lab is that they twitch a lot during sleep, and they move a lot during sleep. Um, it frequently comes on during pregnancy, um, and, but it does run in families. And one of the things that uh, one of the most important contributors uh, to restless leg syndrome is a low um, amount of iron in the body. Uh, and this is something that people need to be aware of. And, and if someone has restless leg syndrome, their doctor should make sure that their iron levels are normal. Uh, and, and that often will solve the problem if the iron problem is solved. 
That's Dr. Mayor Krieger. He's going to stay with us uh, later in the hour. Coming up, we're going to learn how parents and children can get a better night's sleep. Some new parents co-sleep with their infants, despite caution from medical professionals that bed sharing can increase the risk of SIDS. We're going to find out how an American company is helping promote safe sleep practices in the U.S. and abroad. That's more after the break. Again, Dr. Mayor Krieger will stay with us. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. If you appreciate the conversations you hear on Where We Live, it's time to support this show. Here's how. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up Thursday, state lawmakers are up against deadlines this week to settle on their budget plan. On the next Where We Live, we'll find out what gridlock at the Capitol could mean for the state's future. And we'll look across the border to other states dealing with major fiscal issues. How does Connecticut compare? We'll find out Thursday. Now, today we've been talking about sleep. Parents know how hard it is to get a good night's sleep with the new infant, and establishing good sleeping habits can be difficult in the toddler years, too. A recent report by NPR found that co-sleeping, when parents share a bed with their baby, is growing in popularity. This despite caution from pediatricians that co-sleeping can increase the risk of SIDS. So how do medical professionals broach the topic of sleep while also encouraging practices that are safest? To tell us more, we're joined now by Dr. Keisha Gaither. She's a board-certified physician in OBGYN and maternal fetal medicine. She also serves on the medical advisory board for the Baby Box Company. Dr. Gaither, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Good morning. So uh, just a little bit about co-sleeping, about what this practice is and why there are safety concerns. Well, the AAP put out some guidelines a few months ago concerning uh, safe sleep for infants. And basically it was to protect against uh, SIDS. Um, it's recommended that infants sleep in the parents' room. However, they don't specifically recommend um, sleeping with the parents um, for safety reasons. Parents might roll over their uh, uh, comforters and, and pillows and you know, soft objects on the bed, which may, you know, preclude to the infant getting tangled up in it. And so therefore, um, that's two of the reasons why um, it's it's really not considered safe. We're getting a tweet from a listener, Heather. Uh, she writes, I have newborn twins, not much sleep here. Um, so even though the guidelines on co-sleeping have been out for some time, Dr. Gaither, the reality is a lot of parents still co-sleep. So if that's the case, what are the, the safest ways uh, to avoid you know, accidental suffocation? Well, certainly if you feel that you must co-sleep, I think the safest thing would probably be to remove all the bed covers. Um, that way you don't have any risk of the infant getting entangled in anything while you're sleeping. Um, I think that would probably be the safest route to go. Now, I mentioned that you uh, sit on the medical advisory board for the Baby Box Company. Um, tell us about this company and how they are promoting safe sleep, not just in the U.S., but abroad. Well, the Baby Box is a wonderful company, and basically they are promoting a product that's been known uh, for years in Finland, almost 80 years. Finland has the lowest incidence of uh, um, baby or infant um, mortality, and, and it's pretty much due to several things. One is the construction of a baby box. Um, two, the information that is given to parents to assist with anything from um, high-risk pregnancy conditions to uh, birth 
to uh, care of the infant um, afterwards. And I think that Baby Box incorporates these things beautifully. Um, they have a bed, which is uh, in a box. Um, it follows all of the safety guidelines from the CPSC um, as far as newborn sleeping. And in addition, what they do, which I think is wonderful, is to provide information to parents via their Baby Box University. And that information can be reached via www.babyboxuniversity.com. And it's a series of videos on everything from what I call the womb to the room. Um, you know, there are segments on high-risk pregnancy. There are segments on birth. There are segments on the care of the infant after birth. So I think these things in conjunction with each other lend to a really great product. And this is a stand-in for a family or a parent who may not have a bassinet or a crib. That's true. That is true. Um, Baby Box has promoted this product uh, to a number of places nationally and internationally. Um, recently in New Jersey, um, which is a wonderful thing, um, and also in Ohio and in Alabama, and they continue on the move with it. Well, Dr. Keisha Gaither, thank you so much for telling us a little bit about the baby box. Again, uh, she's an OBGYN and maternal fetal medicine physician, also serves on the medical advisory board for the baby box company. We'll tweet out some links from at where we live. Dr. Gaither, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much for having me. I wanted to turn back to our, our guest, Dr. Mayor Krieger, again, professor at the Yale School of Medicine, author of that new book, The Mystery of Sleep. Uh, Dr. Krieger, you must hear from parents uh, often about um, problem sleep especially when they have uh, uh, infants. What are some helpful tips to help parents get sleep and uh, have a restless uh, or have a restful night's sleep, rather? Well, yeah. Uh, so babies, when they're born, are what scientists call polyphasic. And, and what that means is they'll sleep anytime, uh, not necessarily at night. You know, they'll sleep in clusters two to three, four hours, then be awake for a while, three to four hours, and they need to, to be fed. And it's not until three, four, five, six months that they develop what we call a, a circadian rhythm. In other words, they do most of their sleeping at night. So the first few months can be very, very difficult simply because uh, that the, the baby has not established um, uh, a circadian rhythm or, or a normal body clock yet. The brain is developing. It's developing all the mechanisms that, that can actually do that. Um, now, one of the things that we know now, and, and uh, your, um, your last guest kind of emphasized it, is that we, um, one of the things that makes parents sleep better is knowing that their children are safer. And 10, 20 years ago, um, uh, people were very, very frightened about their, their newborns dying of sudden infant death syndrome. And one of the big breakthroughs uh, that, that happened at that time uh, really came from some, some studies, I think they were from New Zealand, that showed that babies that were sleeping on their back were much less likely to develop sudden infant death syndrome that resulted in what was called the back-to-sleep movement. And the, the reasons why a baby sleeping on its front is at risk is that it hasn't developed its neck muscles. It hasn't developed the kind of strength that it needs that if it starts 
to suffocate on something in the bed that it can't really um, uh, extricate itself. And so that has been very, very important. So parents have learned uh, that babies need to sleep in, a, in an environment which is firm with nothing in the bed that can potentially uh, block breathing. And what they now um, encourage um, parents to do is that um, after uh, a few weeks, the baby needs to learn how to um, strengthen its neck. And what they'll institute is something called tummy time, where, where the baby uh, will be put on its tummy under observation. And during this period, it learns to strengthen its head. It learns to move its head. And, and, and so that's a very, very important uh, thing. What can a mother do or a father do uh, while uh, the baby is, is having a lot of difficulty um, um, maintaining sleep at night? Well, they can take naps when the baby naps during the daytime. But one of the things is um, new mothers are going to be sleep deprived whether we like it or not unfortunately. Now, if we're, if you're a parent, we've all been there. You try everything to get your child to sleep. You may rock them to sleep. You hold them um, till they fall asleep. And then you might put on a noise machine. But how do you encourage, uh, these are all just uh, short-term uh, techniques, but eventually the baby will wake up or um, it might um, lend them to, you know, have trouble settling themselves to fall back asleep. So how do parents become to help their children be independent sleepers at some point? Well, yeah, and at some point they need to recognize that the child has all the machinery to sleep. And the machinery to sleep uh, is at a certain age it's developed and, and the parents should not interfere with the, with the baby's ability to fall asleep by always interacting with the baby as it's trying to sleep. So if a baby, for example, is in a bed and it's crying, there's, you know, there's nothing, uh, if the baby is fed and, 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 and so forth uh, and, and is dry, there's not necessarily a reason to, to, you know, to pick up the baby because what may happen is that the baby may start to associate falling asleep uh, with being held by a parent. And that can then be a very difficult association to break. Uh, and and there are many treatments for that, but it's something that parents need to recognize is that the baby needs to learn how to fall asleep again when it wakes up at night because everybody wakes up uh, at night and, and we need to all learn to fall asleep again. This is where we live. Dr. Merrick Krieger is with us, professor at the Yale School of Medicine, author of the new book, The Mystery of Sleep. Uh, we have another call coming in. Cindy's calling from Durham. Cindy, you're on the show. Hi. I have trouble staying asleep. So every night I take a small dose of both Ambien and Ativan. So knowing that other strategies might be better, like meditation, if this works for me, how bad is that? Well, you're, you're taking two medications, uh, uh, to help you sleep. And most people um, can actually be weaned from those medications by what's called cognitive behavioral therapy that I described before. Um, the, is, there a, is there a long-term harm in using sleeping pills? You're using two medications that, that uh, put you to sleep. 
um, it's better that you not be on them because how long are you going to be on them? One month, one year, one decade, three decades. And, and so people can become very, very tolerant of the medications and they can get to a point where they no longer work properly. Um, and so um, what I suggest is if someone is on several medications um, to, to try to fall asleep, that they might be better served to go to a sleep disorders uh, center and to actually um, find uh, a doctor or a practitioner that can help wean at least some of the medications. Dr. Krieger, just a couple of minutes left. You said earlier that um, sleep medicine is still relatively new. A, lo- a lot has been learned in the last 30, 40 years. What do you hope will uh, be the emphasis in the next 10 to 20? Well, um, I think in the, in the next 10 to 20 years, um, the, the, uh, people are going to start making sleep a priority, just like 20, 30 years ago, uh, people uh, decided that they weren't going to drink and drive. Um, in other words, if you want to stay alert, if you want to uh, function at your best, if you want to be as healthy as you can be, sleep is one of the things that you can actually do and something that you can can, can actually control. So I think it's going to become part of our fabric, just like exercise is now part of our our, our fabric of healthy living. Eating healthy is part of it. And I think sleep is going to end up being a very important part of the fabric of health. I have to ask, there's lots of apps out there to help you sleep, to meditate. What's your take on those, Dr. Krieger? Well, um, we're very, very early in evaluating some of these apps. Some Some of the apps um, there are apps that that, are, that um, help people uh, sleep. There's one that was developed uh, at Stanford at the VA, um, and and it helps uh, people sleep. It's, um, and and that's one that may help. Some of them have been evaluated. A lot of the apps that that monitor sleeping actually are not necessarily helpful, and people generally will use them for one or two months and then say, look, I already know that I'm only sleeping four or five hours a night. What do I need this app to tell me that I'm not sleeping enough? And a lot of people stop using those types um, of apps because they don't find them all that useful. And I understand that you get seven to nine hours of sleep? Yes, I do. <laughs> and how do, you, how do you do that? How do you make sure that you're as rested as possible? I make sleep a priority. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, this is the thing, is that if I want to be wide awake and alert, uh, I need to get my seven to nine hours. And as a doctor, uh, I don't want to be taking patients with my eyes half closed. Well, that's a good thing. Dr. Mary Krieger, professor at the Yale School of Medicine, author of the new book, The Mystery of Sleep, Why a Good Night's Rest is Vital to a Better, Healthier Life. He joined us today from the studios of Yale University in New Haven, Connecticut. Dr. Krieger, thank you so much for your time. We appreciate it. Oh, it's a pleasure. Today's show is produced by Lydia Brown. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. If you appreciate the conversations you hear on Where We Live, support this show during WNPR's Spring Fun Drive. Here are two of my colleagues to tell you how.